you ever think about what you're thinking about? Of course you do. And I often think about what I'm thinking about when improvising. But when I pose this question to the great French pianist-composer Jean-Michel Pilk in this episode, his answer is along the lines of a kind of nothing. Sort of. Stay tuned. First this. Hey, it's Peter Saltzman. If you love improvisations on the ledge, please be so kind as to spread the word, give it five stars, and a great review. And to keep up to date with all of my activities, including this podcast, new albums, performances, and music education, be sure to visit my website at petersaltzman.com. Enjoy the show. officially introducing my first podcast with another pianist besides myself, Jean-Michel Pilk, the great French pianist and composer. I believe you're in Montreal now? Yeah, I was born in Paris. I moved to New York in 94. And Mm -hmm. then I moved to Montreal in 2015. And I became a a professor at the Schulich School of Music of McGill University at that time. Yep. Right. Good. In thinking about what to talk about in this. My episodes have really been about exploring what goes on in a musician's mind. I'm sure you can attest there's a lot of mythology about what we do, uh, and people don't really understand it. And I, I went and listened to several of your interviews and read some things on your website. It's interesting how you talk about it, but since the name of the podcast itself is improvisations on the ledge. Obviously, the focus is improvisation. My first question for you would be, and and I ask this because I explore it a lot, what goes on in your head when you're freely improvising? Well, I think since you've read my interviews, you're not going to be surprised by the very oblique answer I'm going to give you right now. But, uh, you know, I, I think that human beings are very... You know, we're humans. We want to understand everything. You know, I mean, right. I think it's part of the of the human makeup that people want to understand things. When mm-hmm. they don't understand something or when they don't come to a satisfactory explanation or theory or, mod- or model of how it's working, like you said, they tend to mythologize instead and invent right. some mythology that replaces the facts. You know, that mm-hmm. are obviously not being known properly. And uh, music is no exception because it's a human activity. I mean, unlike many of many humans, I don't think you, uh, humans are the only species who make music. I'm sure there are others. It's just that we cannot hear it. Right. So basically, there are two, to me, I mean, and I'm sorry, I'm going to be maybe a bit schematic here. There are two ways to, to, to live your life, so to speak. As the first way is, I want to understand everything. I want to understand as much as I can. I want to have an explanation for as many things as possible. I want to, you know, when I'm on my deathbed, I want to have the impression that I understood as much as I possibly could. I think it's interesting, you know, and I, and I, and I absolutely admire people who function like that. But that's not my case. I'm like, well, you know, I think when I will be on my deathbed, I, I will probably realize that I have not understood more than 0.00001% of what there is to understand anyway. Right. So my take on life is a bit different. I'm, lo- I'm more like there are things that are mysterious and they work because they are mysterious. And I think music is one of them. I, th- I think if 
if there are some mysteries that if you try to really penetrate them and break them down and see the little wheels and how it works and stuff, you destroy the mystery. And at the end of the day, you damage the very phenomenon that you try to understand. You know, quantum mechanics, I mean, I'm a big fan of quantum mechanics because... Me too. Nobody understands them, including me, by the way. And yeah, right. uh, only for that, I think it's fantastic because it's something that nobody understands and that basically predicts everything right, pretty right. much. Right. right, Quantum mechanics tell you if you measure something, well, Can't it, it's, stand it, some- it's, it's already something else. Right. You know, a particle has no spin until you measure it and it has a spin. That drove right. Einstein crazy. Somebody as smart as Einstein, who was probably 10 times as smart as you and I put together, or maybe maybe right. even more, you know, was like, no, I mean, you know, either it has a spin or it doesn't. And by, you know, the bare inequalities, I'm not going to go too far into, into theory here, people, people have proven, I would say, you know, it's not 100%, but it's pretty much proven almost that a particle has no spin until you measure it. Right. It's not everything like it collapses into a, a possible exactly. infinite possibilities exactly. until you it's observe not, it. It's not like it has a spin that you don't know and suddenly you know it. No, it doesn't right. have one and then it has one at the moment you measure it because as you said of the collapse of the wave function. Right. To me music is the same. I if agree. you measure music, it's not music anymore. You lose the music as you, as you put your finger in that little button, like, I want to understand what's going on, the music collapses. And I've seen that happen over and over again. And, you know, and that's what makes music research so difficult, is that you have to find a way to, I, I wouldn't even use the word understand, but to grasp things about music because you know it's it's interesting and makes you evolve as a musician but without right. pushing that button that's going to make the music disappear and it's a big challenge for a musician and for and for a music researcher as well right of course as musicians we on the other hand on some level as you say we have to understand what we're doing in order to make it work just as a a pilot needs to know how to fly a plane or a surgeon has to know how to do surgery we have to understand something of the mechanics of what we're doing which is what we practice to get to that point Mm -hmm. where the magic and the mystery happens. And it's interesting you talk about quantum physics. I'm a huge follower of that myself. For me, it has a huge bearing on how I go about improvising, understanding that in the moment you made a musical decision and everything that comes after it will then come out of that moment. And you can go back and question, what what was I thinking? But it doesn't matter. You made the decision. You chose to look at that particle at that moment, and there you are. But I guess what I'm asking you, as we're making music, as we're playing a chord randomly... All right, I I know what I just played. I played Mm -hmm. an F major 13 chord, right? Mm -hmm. You know that too. There is this fine line for me between what you're talking about, not trying to understand it, but also being aware of what's going on, particularly when you are improvising and you you have to make these split-second decisions, right? Everything is happening. I tell my students, in music, you are simultaneously existing in the present, past, and future because you're playing at the moment. You have to remember what you just played so you can connect it, and then you're thinking about what's coming next. I mean, this is all happening 
in at the same time, right? And to negotiate that process obviously requires a kind of thinking. It may not be, you know, mechanical engineering type of thinking where you're sitting down and scoping things out, but it, it requires a certain intellectual involvement in what you're doing. You're aware there's different kinds of improvisation. There's free improvisation, which I do a lot of. And then there's, of course, improvisation within the structure of songs and other things. When you're playing a song that you already know, you're basically negotiating that melody, that set of chords, which you already know. When you're doing something freely, it's all just happening right in the moment. So I guess what I'm asking you beyond, I understand what you're saying, but you are a part of your brain the brain being a massive sub-processing computer, if you want to think, with multiple levels of things going on at once, right? Part of your brain has to be involved in just getting from this chord to that chord. And I, I guess what I'm asking then is, how do you as keep that mystery in it while at the same time maintaining control of the, I mean... If we didn't have any control, if we didn't know anything we were doing, it would be a musical mess, most likely, right? So how do you, not trying to break down the mystery, but when we're playing, I was uh, listening to an interview with another pianist, and I can't remember who it was, who was saying, there's this idea that when you talk about sports, for instance, you're always hearing these sports cliches, go, go play basketball, just don't think, just play. But of course you're thinking. So I'm asking you, and maybe you don't want to reveal it, if you're sitting down and playing a free improvisation, how do you negotiate it? Is there a process for it? Well, that was quite a long question. You, you, you did something yeah. incredible here. You made me shut up for like 15 minutes, which is pretty rare. So I congratulate you. Okay, well, I have the same problem. I you congratulate know. <laughs> you on that. Uh, well, there are a lot of things to be said about all you said, because you, you made lots of statements, which are yours, and, and uh, I didn't say anything because I was listening. And... Uh, Turns out I can be a good listener once in a while. Um, first of all, there is an element of vocabulary that's very misleading, of semantics. When you use words such as understand, control, intellectual, stuff like that, breakdown, decision-making, it's very, very easy to take those words and understand them in a way that's not, uh, I would say, relevant to the process right. we're talking about, which is music making. People, when you say understand, they immediately think about rational understanding. When you talk about decision making, you almost you already talk, you already think about rational conscious decision making. When you talk about memory, you know people with Alzheimer's, and there is this case of this guy described by Oliver Sacks, who, by the way, wrote a beautiful mm -hmm. book about mm -hmm. music, musicophilia. This yep. guy uh, named Clive Waring, who has absolutely no short-term memory and wakes up every 10 seconds not knowing what happened before. That guy can right. play a 10-minute piece of music with no problem. Right. So music is not memory-based. If you look at right. a CD, you have a whole symphony on the CD, but it's all there. A creature right. from outer space could actually decrypt Beethoven's Fifth Symphony at the speed of light, you know, and, <laughs> and tell you, oh, that's great music, you know, great stuff, that's great information. So... All those words can be very easily misinterpreted because that's the problem with words. 
words don't mean anything. You know, it's just the, the meaning that you ascribe to them that gives you an image in your brain. Oh, okay. Oh, he understands. So he knows what he's doing. So he knows he's playing this chord and he knows he's playing that scale and he knows what he has to play next and he has made a decision and he's conscious of what he's doing and there is a control at work. So he's controlling. And all those things are wrong. All those things are not the, at all the way it happens. When you talk about free improvisation, what you call free improvisation, I call it instant composition. Why do I, I call agree. it? Why do I call it instant composition? Because when I'm inspired, it's not free at all. I'm under dictation. I know exactly That's what I have to point. play. You know, that's so my point. There is no freedom there. And if I play a standard, I have to feel in the exact same state. It's not because right. suddenly there is a core progression that I should stop being an instant composer. I have to remain an instant composer. So now I'm going to answer your question, maybe playing a couple of notes. If I sit at the piano and I do this, listen. See, I'm playing. And while I'm playing, I'm talking to you. We can continue having that conversation, you know. I can do background music for you. That's nice, you know. That's an idea for your next podcast, you know. <laughs> so, etc. I can talk to you about quantum mechanics and the Copenhagen uh, interpretation and stuff like that. And the disagreement between Einstein and Bohr. But I don't want to sound too much like a Bohr, somebody who wants to uh, spread uh, his knowledge, you know. I don't remember much of quantum mechanics, to be honest. I haven't talked about it and thought about it that much in the last few years. But you see, I can play, and it doesn't sound random, right? It doesn't sound like random no. stuff. And I can keep doing that, and it's really fun. I like to talk. Very often I demonstrate to my students, and I talk at the same time, to show them that precisely at the moment I'm playing this, my intellectual perception of what I'm doing is equal to zero. Hmm. Because my intellectual perception is busy doing other stuff, which is talk to you, and I have to think about what I'm telling you, uh, which might have not made much sense. But And while I'm doing that, there is a zone in my brain which is handling this. That's what I'm talking about. There is, for example, this analogy that I use a lot, which is when you drive, because you use the sports, but uh, driving can be a sport, but it can also be a daily activity of many humans. You drive your car and you talk to your passenger, try to look, in, uh, to look at the door. You're not, at the, I mean, at the outside world, you don't like calculate the angle of your wheel or the pressure on the pedals. You just drive and talk. And So what I, what I can tell you is that, and that what I emphasize with my students all the time is, Multitasking. You do something and something else is taking place in the background, like in a computer. You, you, you talk about the brain being a computer. You know, it's not exactly the same thing, but there are analogies. No. And one of the analogies is the, compu- the, the brain can handle things in the background. My right. ideal state to make music when I'm inspired is that the whole of music that I'm playing is in the background. Which means I have a feeling I could stand up, go to the bar, get a drink, and the piano would keep playing. So if you're asking me, what is it that controls this? What is it that makes the decision? What is it that handles it? My answer is, well, something in my brain somewhere. Now, the problem is I cannot remove my brain, cut it in peace, and show to you how this or that neuron works. So I have zero answer to you. I cannot see my brain. I cannot see the neurons firing. 
So I have no idea. I don't know how to answer your question. All I know is that there is something inside of my brain that handles it and seems to to be handling handling it very well without me having to worry about it intellectually or at all. Right. You know, Oliver Sacks, because we are talking about him, has this very nice expression. He said, those parts of the brain on which we have perfect control but of which we know nothing about. I don't know if right. I'm quoting him right here. But yeah, in I've a way, his, and you could almost invert it and say those parts of the brain who, which know everything but on, twi- on which we have no control. When I'm playing like that, I could reverse the... F- I, I could say, you know, uh, I have perfect control o- over what I'm doing right now, but I know nothing about it. But I can reverse the statement and say... I have no control about what I'm do- on what I'm doing right now, but I know everything about it. Both are true. Okay. Quantum mechanics well, you again. Act, but you actually Quantum act. mechanics again. So you see the duality, you know? Right. Every coin has another side. So music is a big contradiction, man. And uh, I think what you're asking me is to uh, to really like get into a zone of knowledge that I really don't have. Basically, what I know, and maybe I'm going to answer your question a bit more satisfactorily, is that by the accumulation of practicing that I've done over the years, yes, I have built something inside of me that has seems to have taken an 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 existence of its own. Like when you water a plant and it grows and you have no control about over how it grows. So that part of my brain that I've built over the years practicing has become an alter ego of some kind in my in my in my in my soul and now when i wake up in the morning i know it's there i don't know what it's going to do or he or she i don't know how we <laughs> should call it these days but or the or the or they you know whatever but i i i sure know that that thing has an existence of its own and that yeah. your years in your years out i trust it more and more you know, which right. is a which is a point of practicing and maturity and well, try, that's, trying to get you, better. You, you answered the question then. It is in Ooh, fact what a relief. Uh, <laughs> that was well, you did <laughs> because I wanted to see how you would approach that. Um, mm-hmm. And of course, you're right. It's it's the point of practicing to get to the point where you just you do it. Of course, exactly. it becomes a thing of its own. I see music in terms of since we we're talking about quantum mechanics. Physicists refer to these four fundamental forces in the universe. Uh, mm-hmm. Gravity, the strong and weak nuclear force, and electromagnetic force, right? It's interesting, as musicians, I do see music as a, like a separate... Now, of course, music relies on waveforms and the electromagnetic force and the transmission of waveforms. Mm-hmm. But you're right, like every other thing it's its own entity it exists almost in a its own corner in the universe operating by its own internal rules you know what you know what schopenhauer said that's a beautiful quote schopenhauer said music is the universe once again yeah you know so you you know i I want to give you that quote because it's kind of what you're saying you know really right right now one of the things you talked about in answering that was the idea of free improvisation being composition on the spot. Mm-hmm. That's something that I firmly believe in as well. It's how I approach it. I don't see it as different from composing. Mm-hmm. I think that a lot of people do. Like, you're either composing or you're improvising. My inspiration for 
that kind of philosophy of composing on the spot in a lot of ways comes more from people I never heard improvise, and that's like Beethoven, Mozart, Bach, Chopin, because we know they were brilliant improvisers. Beethoven could improvise sonatas mm -hmm. in, in the moment that people of his time said were better than his written ones. So mm -hmm. what does this tell us? about improvisation. It tells us exactly what you were pointing out, that at its best, when you think of it or don't think of it as composing, right? Yes. Uh, I, I would say, you know, first of all, there is a good correlation between something we said before and this, is that when I said music is not time-based, which means you can, you know, grasp a, a Beethoven symphony on a CD in a split second if you if you only had the means to read the CD with some laser uh, device right, of right. your own you know we need time because you know we are biological creature and we need the waveform to reach our ears and the brain to process it and it takes 40 minutes I don't know how much the fifth symphony is but 40 minutes or so to to get the thing but you could get it instantly if only our makeup was different you know right same with a movie. You have the whole Godfather series. You could look at the DVDs and grasp the whole thing in, in a split second. It's a funny thought. And, and so that that's, the, I think maybe Schopenhauer was actually really right. That I, I feel sometimes that space-time is an illusion and that the whole of universe might be a gigantic city. I'm not, or DVD. I'm not the first <laughs> one to think about that because when you look at the movie The Matrix, well, right. here we go. You know, they already thought right. about it, those guys. You know, right. I, I believe that movie is kind of more, maybe more realistic than we think. The interesting is that because music, you know, is not time-based, that explains why someone with Alzheimer or someone like Clive Waring, who has no short-term memory, can still make music exactly the same way they did before they were uh, afflicted with the illness or the disability. So the fact that it's not time-based is directly related to the fact that improvisation and composition are the exact same thing, because, you know, when a composer composes, it's not like he's writing a note and he's like, oh my God, what is the next note I'm going right this uh hold on or oh, this no i'm sure those guys they already have the vision of the of the piece well you some know? do and, but and they write it i'm sure someone like beethoven had then of course they go through corrections because you know somebody like well, beethoven was very perfectionist and he go, went through multiple corrections whereas somebody like mozart didn't and someone like brahms didn't i mean people can be different and you have the possibility to correct and improve eventually well but yeah. But in a way, you improvise on paper, and when you improvise, you compose in thin air. You know, I, I called one of my projects Invisible Ink, and I called another one Paperless Composers. You know, yeah. that's exactly what I wanted to say. I mean, we write music, but we don't use pen and paper. We just use another medium. Now, the fact that one is slower than the other, somebody used to say composition is improvisation slow, and, and improvisation mm -hmm. is, uh, is composition fast. The fact that it's another medium doesn't change the essence of the musical vision. Some painters, you know, the greatest painters, it takes them some time to do the painting, but they already see it. You know, it's just right. that it takes time to materialize it. And I think the problem in music is you need to materialize a vision and you have different mediums with which you can do that. Pen and paper is one, the instrument is another one. And recording, which we're lucky to have, but Beethoven, Chopin, Schubert, Mozart, unfortunately didn't have, unfortunately for them, and very unfortunately and us. for us. Right. It is one of those miracle mediums that you can use, you know. I believe the way jazz has evolved is very, very intrigued, or even the way jazz has been designed to begin with, is very, very uh, intricately tied to the existence of the recording, of recording. technology. Sure. You know? So I yeah, don't know and, that... Uh, 
I think, from my standpoint, all of our music making is connected to the available technologies. Piano is an advanced piece of technology. Of course. So it's going to influence how you go about making music. The other point, you know, unfortunately, we can't hear those improvisations of Beethoven and Mozart and so on, is that, going on back to my original point about mythologies, musical mythologies, because we don't have that, even though we know Bach could improvise five-voice fugues on the spot, we know this but all we can hear is exactly what they wrote down. And as a result, we tend to make their kind of hagiographies, these perfect musical statements, whereas, as you probably know, the well-tempered clavier, the preludes and fugues were mostly written in lessons for students thrown off. They were basically written down improvisations. So the point is, because we only see the end result, this perfected, written-down thing, we tend to think that is how the music is made on paper. But of course, Bach was a a brilliant keyboardist, and he improvised these things, and he probably wrote them down, and then he, yes, refined them, which I would say is the one great thing about being able to write music down, is it gives you a chance to go back and clean things up, if you choose to, Mm -hmm. which could be an advantage, and it could also be a disadvantage if you let it control you. Well, I I think, you know, really, like I said, there is a musical vision, and that musical vision can be expressed through different mediums. And I I, I want to make a point here that's important to me, that I don't think music is an exception. I think many human activities are like that. You know, I think many activities based on passion are like that. I even think, like, love is a good example of that, you know? There are many mediums through which love can exert itself, you know? Uh, from art to uh, to stories to literature to, uh, to history to many, you know? And, and I, I think that people tend to confuse essence and form, you know? Like, they tend to sometimes feel like because the medium that you use is such and such then you, it, it makes you a different type of creature. So they're going to think that, for example, mm. oh, Beethoven wrote written music and with Armstrong improvised. And right. I'm like, no, with Armstrong could write music if he wanted to and Beethoven could improvise if he wanted to. In both cases, it's a musical vision and the result is beautiful music. Beethoven didn't necessarily spend more time on the bar than Louis Armstrong. It's just not the same way of spending time, you know, but the vision, the essence of the vision is probably way closer than we think. And people tend to confuse that. And I think that's a big tragedy of the 20th century that as a result, there has been a separation between composers, improvisers, interpreters, songwriters, conductors, and and, and people got completely specialized and labeled and, and pigeonholed in different categories. Right. which was not the case at all at the time Back of then. Mozart in, or Beethoven. Those well, people interpreted. They played concert of their own pieces and, and pieces by others. They wrote operas. They wrote songs, leaders. They wrote you know? songs. They, 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 they were improvisers. They were composers. They were conductors. They were pianists or other instruments, etc. And I think, and Glenn Gould said it before me, way before me, that separation of roles because of some form, you know, just on the basis of form, not on the basis of substance or essence, right. has been a musical tragedy. Because, it has. Because to it's, me, it has completely turned music into a political field where people, you know, get power from a certain corner mm-hmm. of, of, the, of the whole thing, you know. And it has 
you know, I'm not a big fan of group of uh, identity politics in general, and yeah, but that's a big form too. of identity politics, putting it people is. in different groups and giving them different, you know, roles, rights, uh, grievances, uh, advantages or disadvantages, you know, and, and it's not right. And it, I think it does harm, hurt music tremendously. I, I for one, am very, like, active at, at trying to remove that terrible okay, barrier, that terrible barrier that there is between classical music and jazz. That has been But it's a, not just... Just thing. classical music and jazz. No, it's I, know. I know. All of it. I mean, I quite frankly, look, Beethoven's 250th anniversary is coming up next year. And so I just decided randomly, I mean, I've played a lot of the sonatas, but I decided I'm just going to listen to them while I'm driving or whatever, in order. And the thing that stands out to me was what a great songwriter this. Of course, I know he was a genius at uh, thematic development and form, all the things that he's acknowledged for. But just listening... Freshly, like from the beginning, I said, "This guy's a master songwriter." Absolutely, and it's something. And so was Mozart and Chopin, and so on. The fundamentals of what they were doing, they were writing songs, and then they were developing them in amazing ways. But that's the other thing that's lost. We now have the song relegated to pop music is where you get the song. Jazz is where you get improvisation. Mm-hmm. Classical music is where you get, quote-unquote, serious written compositions. Right. Those are all false dichotomies. I'm a songwriter. I've written pop songs. I sing. And I see how all these things, the song, improvisation, composition, are all one thing. You're absolutely correct. Have been completely separated. And it is mm-hmm. very political. It's about everybody claiming their territory. This is mine. You mm-hmm. can't go here. So what I wanted to ask you about that, you made a really interesting statement that you're trying to break that down. You specifically said between classical and jazz, I, I think it goes well beyond that. You know, I grew up with the pop music of the 60s and 70s, and I, I love Paul Simon, Stevie Wonder, the Beatles, yeah. and so on. My kids listen so, to the Rolling Stone these days, you know, all the old Rolling oh, yeah? Stones, and they love okay. it. You know, I'm like, you know, yeah, this is great music. I mean, we listen right. to Aftermath so, but, and Let It Bleed and all those stuff. You know? Right. But my question is, then, you say you're trying to break that down. How? What do you well, do? Cause yeah, I- yeah, yeah. No, uh, I mean, I'm trying to break that down. You know, I, I'm not here to change the world. I'm a, right. I'm, I'm a simple man trying to make good music. That's all I'm at. Uh, you know, changing the world. I mean, people want to change the world. Uh, when somebody tells me he or she wants to change the world, I just generally run away really fast. Yeah, right. Because, you know, <laughs> their ideas are very often... It's nice. On the, on the, we need people who have passion and want to change things. I'm not against it because, you know, that would be ridiculous, you know. Right. You know, some things could be changed and need to be changed. We're in the middle of a climate crisis and, you know, there is this young lady who's being criticized heavily and I'm like, well, don't kill the messenger. We are in the, in the middle of a crisis. So, you know, people who want to, to change the world, you know, sometimes have good reasons for that and, and I respect it and sometimes I really approve of it. You know, right. the world is better now than it was 500 years ago in many places in the world, not everywhere, unfortunately. Right. So that's cool. I respect that. And I, uh, and in my own sweet way, maybe I'm trying to add my little contribution to that. But I'm okay. a musician, so my contribution, you know, will be essentially musical, even though sometimes I open my big mouth on other subjects. <laughs> but, you know, and so to go back to what you asked me, I would say, first of all, somebody once asked Mozart, how 
can somebody compose the way you do? It's so incredible. Mozart said, well, the first thing you have to do is, first of all, never ask that question. It's a loss of time. <laughs> Second thing, do it yourself and write songs. Right. And you know, people like Beethoven, Bach, Chopin, Schubert, Mozart, Brahms, I mean, Wagner, you can make the whole list. They were all, you know, songwriters, like you, just, like you rightly said. Right. People who yeah. could write a simple song. So that gives me a transition about what I'm doing, which is that I like to improvise in, I, I'm going to simplify, but in three different setups. And I'm not doing a dichotomy here, just for the sake of understanding. Okay. <laughs> You're going to see, actually, it's the same at the end. Solo right. piano, because I love playing solo. Small bands small groups, which is basically trio, quartet, sometimes quintet, and my improvisation workshop project based in Montreal, uh, improvworkshopproject.com. I'm saying that not for publicity's sake because I don't, no, make, that's fine. I don't make money out of it, but because people can go there and have tons and tons of audio and video stuff that they can watch, like audio, videos of all sessions, gigs, studio recordings, journals made by the musicians themselves so that you have a mm. direct feedback from the musician about their improvisational experience. And in that project, we are sometimes eight, nine, ten people on stage, sometimes jazz musicians, sometimes classical, sometimes a mix of the two, and we improvise. Paperless, no paper, no calculation and rehearsal, nothing. People who very often have never played together, most of the time, you have two or three or four people on stage who don't even know each other, who don't even know their, each other's names. Right. That's very interesting. And in all three situations, as different as they can be, I have noticed something is that there is always something good which happens. Mm -hmm. It's not always good. Sometimes you have moments which you are on stage and you're like, oh my God, I wish I wasn't there right now, you know, because <laughs> yeah. it's not it's not working. Yeah. You know, it's improvisation. Right. Something's going on, just not there, you know, and, uh, and that's fine. Uh, to me, improvisation is like life. Life, not every day is good. Not every hour is good. Not every minute is good. And like Edith Piaf said, if you're happy 10 minutes in a day, it's a good day. So, yeah. you know, but what I know for sure and I don't think there have been many exceptions to what I'm going to say, that there is always, at some point, something really good that happens. Sometimes right. it can last an hour, sometimes it's going to last 10 minutes, sometimes it's going to last a few seconds. But there are those moments where you're like, oh, yeah, this is really working. And those moments of creation where you feel like everybody's under dictation and there is no doubt as to what should be played. And that taught me something that I'm going to, I might sound a bit irrational or mystical here, which doesn't matter. It's okay. I think improvisation has a mind of its own. I think I think there is such a thing. I, I know somebody like uh, Jung talked about it, Carl Jung. Oh, yeah. unlike, unlike some people, I'm not a Carl Jung fan, but he said something very right, that there is this collective... Unconsciousness, yeah. Yes, because, you know, we come from the same DNA originally, and there is this evolution that took place and over the years, and there is this big collective thing that's somewhere there. I feel like in life, sometimes you are in the middle of a collective moment. It can be a conversation, it can be in the subway, it can be in the street, it can be in a sports event or whatever, and suddenly you feel there is a connection taking place. Sure. It right. can be a connection between two people, love or friendship, it can be a connection between, you know, a big group of people. Right. And sometimes it can go wrong and be the other way and you have a war. But, you know, that's what I said. <laughs> sometimes it's good, sometimes it's not. But yeah. you have a connection and it can, the connection suddenly, 
the object becomes bigger than the sum of its parts, meaning that suddenly that group of people, whatever you name it, becomes an entity of its own. And that's something that I've noticed with the improv project. Of course, I bring my personality to the plate. I, I, I give cues and stuff like that. And sometimes I can be a bit of a dictator, you know, when I need to. But I feel like that project has a personality of its own in spite of the fact that the musicians keep changing all the time and sometimes, like I said, don't even know each other. And, and there is another correlation here, is that when it works, it's very often song-like, which means you're in the middle of an improvisation and suddenly it becomes a song. And that, uh, that is pretty often a miraculous moment. And that's what I keep saying to people who improvise. I say, it doesn't need to be... It doesn't need to be like random, atonal, arrhythmic, a-melodic stuff. Right. Improvisation can be, you know... probably need some lyrics, etc. But <laughs> I was completely improvising. And right. it sounded like, you know? And that's what I love to do on solo piano, is sit at the piano and try to let a song come out of me. And very naturally, you know, I'm not saying, oh, I should write a song now. No, I let it come naturally, and very often something comes out, and I'm like, yeah, that, that's a song. Is it good or bad? That's not for me to decide. That's Posterity will make its choice. But, uh, but, uh, but it's song-like. And very often in this improv project, or in the small groups I'm talking about, trio, quartet, quintet, you have those moments where you feel like, oh, my God, this is a hit. I could make money <laughs> with that thing. I could be rich. <laughs> I have to right. send this to uh, Simon and Garfunkel. Oh, my gosh. They split like right. 30 years ago. Shit. Too late. Right. But you know, you know what I'm saying. And so there is this false vision. And again, we go back to identity politics here. Oh, improvisation is this very esoteric, atonal, complicated intellectual stuff. There is a guy yeah. who came to me recently said, oh, I have an improvisation project. We play only atonal stuff. And I looked at him and I said, why? What is... Yeah, you, why would so you're you, not, you don't improvise because you already know what you're going to you play or not to play. <laughs> right. You already have a limit to your improvisation. How sad is that? The interesting probably? thing to me, though, and, and I agree that there are times when you're improvising and you know it's a mess and you just want to get off stage or stop recording or whatever. But there are also those times where you simply don't know. And I would say that happens more often than not. I am doing mm -hmm. something and it's interesting to me, but I also feel like I'm not really pulling this off. I'm not getting mm -hmm. it technically. It's falling apart. I'm not mm -hmm. hitting all my notes, mm -hmm. all these things that kind of sow doubt within my improvisational spirit, and then I go back and listen to it, and none of that matters. It totally works. Well, well, let me let me just say something here that's important. Mm -hmm. I always tell to my music to my students and to the musician I'm playing with, and with the project, with the improv project, we do it automatically. And my little machine that I'm using right now to record my voice, I use it at every one of my gigs, and I record myself, and I sometimes, not always, listen back to it. I always yeah. tell musicians in general, record your stuff and listen to it later. Definitely. Because you have to decrease the distance between the player and the hearer to something as close to zero as possible. Mm. You know, I remember recording myself when I was playing solo 20 years ago, and each time I listened to the result, 
was like, I don't know, I felt so good when I was playing, and now listen to it, and I can stand it. And I realized that at the moment I was playing, I was simply not hearing it. Yeah. You have, you have to hear yourself when you play, with other people or, or solo, whatever, as close as possible to how you would hear yourself if you were sitting in the room. Beautiful. The way I practice that is that I record a lot of stuff, and then I listen back to it later. And I learn from it, and it decreases that distance, naturally. There is another way to see it. When you live your life, you don't see your face in hmm. normal life. The one thing that you never see is your face. When you play music, you guys are watching your face all the time. You're, you're in the piano trying to play this and that. You are really like watching yourself all the time. But that's exactly what you're not doing in life. In life, you, you watch everything or you even see everything without having to watch. But the one thing you don't see is your face. So in music, it's the same. The one thing that's the most important is to hear what's going on yeah. that's not Hear you it. and actually even when you play solo as contradictory as it sounds the one thing that you have to hear is the sound of the music you know and, and if you are playing and if you are playing and you're like oh i played the wrong note oh i did this oh i did that you're watching yourself you're not hearing the sound of the music you're just watching yourself playing music and it cuts you off from the hearing part and then that's when you listen to yourself five days later and you're like oh my god that's not at all what i thought so I, that's why I, I i like to record myself and listen back to it later i think it has also kind of a Darwinian role in self-editing, like you keep what's good and you, you hear what's not good and naturally you, you, try and you, you tend not to play it anymore. But, but the most important thing is that it be, you become a better hearer of the music as you are playing it. I think it's very essential in order to know at the moment you're improvising. When I'm improvising and I hear the music properly, sometimes I'm like, well, what I hear I don't really like, but it's going to be okay. It's like life. Life would be boring if it was only a succession of wonderful moments, you know? We would be bored to death because we wouldn't know they are wonderful anymore. We would be bored by all this beauty and happiness. Right, and it's interesting what you say about recording. By doing it, you develop a kind of discernment about what works and what doesn't if you are self-critical enough to say, you know, something is not working. When you were talking, though, one of the things that I was thinking about, it got back to my original question. So the way I understood what you were saying and the way I guess I think about it is there is, you're sitting there improvising... And whatever you're playing... There's a part of you that's the listener, right? You're also the audience. And if you're not, if there's not this certain removal, then there's going to be a problem. You have to listen. And in a circuitous way, you've now answered the question I originally asked back at the beginning. What are we thinking about? And it seems what you're saying is, I'm playing, but I'm also listening. Almost as if there was another person there. And I know that I've developed that facility, too. It, it's the same thing. You know, if you don't, you're going to be playing notes and not... Not music, right, and there correct. is a difference. You have to have that sense of removal, that sense mm -hmm. that you're not a musician. Part of you is just taking. I, I think the the zone that I was talking about at the beginning. You know, I told you there is a zone in our brain that handles the whole music thing right. that we don't really know how it works, but it's there. You can feel like it's almost a second part of yourself or an mm -hmm. alter ego or something. That that part needs to hear what's going on. That part, yes. that part is not computing, making compu computational algorithmic calculations on the basis of some, you know, scientific theory. Some, many people believe that, and I think they're wrong. That part receives music in the form of a wave of sound mm. and nourishes itself of it 
in order to function. And you know, and, and I said, you know, music is not time uh, dependent, right. that you have this vision that's almost instant. You know, I always compare it to spoken language. You know exactly what you want to say before you form a sentence, and then it takes the time to form the sentence to say what you mean, but you mean it in a split second, you know. Music is the same. But you still need the feedback of the senses for that zone to function. For right. example, some painters, I'm sure they see perfectly in their mind the image of what they want to do, but they still have to open their eyes and look at the object canvas or sculpture because they need that feedback to continue working on the, on the on their work of art and i think a musician is the same for me a musician hears what's going on the exact same way that a painter sees what's on the canvas so if you are stuck on your instrument without hearing a thing you're doing and just calculating and moving fingers and stuff you're a bit like a painter who is painting with his or her eye closed and moving the arms in some kind of a mathematical way according to some that's exactly the analogy and you do see that immediately you get into a problem except in music it's feasible many people play without hearing a note of what they're doing they just move their fingers on the basis of what's written on the page or some you know pattern that they've heard that they've that they've learned and that's a terrible misunderstanding about improvisation is that improvisation there is no brain in your hands improvisation is not a mechanical thing it's not like a mechanical noodling the way some stupid classical composers envisioned it you know i don't want to give names here it's it is something very deep that really needs the hearing part to function correctly you know and that's why that's why i'm doing all i'm doing in terms of recording listening etc absolutely well what would be interesting now is we've talked a lot and it would be nice for each of us to play something. One of the things that's funny to me about improvisation, obviously it happens in the moment and because it's happening in the moment, it's influenced by all sorts of things going on in the world around you. Of course, if you're in a recording studio, you can isolate to some extent the world around you, but there's still things happening. You know, If you're in a recording studio, the engineer is in there taking a sip of coffee when you look up. So that influences is your mindset. I told a story in one of my podcasts that I keep thinking about that I remember reading when I was a kid about Charlie Parker playing in some club probably in Kansas City and he's playing this really complex bebop phrase and in walks this gorgeous woman and he totally changes his tact because he wants to impress her. He goes with a more bluesy type of style to get the attention of this woman. Now you could say that well he's lost his train of musical thought but what I say is that was his train of musical thought in the moment. It went from being very complex to bluesy, and that was mm-hmm. the story in that moment. So what I was going to suggest is a couple things. Yeah, One, we could randomly play something for each other and react to it, and or pick a theme and improvise on that in succession. Anything you would like to do, this is your show today, Jean-Michel. Yeah, I mean, Arthur Rubinstein said something very nice about this phenomenon. He said, sometime I'm in a concert hall and I don't feel particularly inspired. Then I turn my head and I see somebody who is really listening the right way. I can feel that that person is really listening to the music. But he probably meant a beautiful woman also because, you know, Rubinstein was quite uh, interested as well. He didn't make any secret of it. At the time, you could say it without being condemned, you know, you know, as long as you kept acting decently, which I'm sure he did. And, you know, that's very interesting. And he said that as soon as he sees that person, he starts playing better. 
differently and better. I have noted that in my playing quite a few times. I'm in a club and I see some people and I can see on their faces that there is something, this energy, this intensity, and it's there. And it goes to me. Like I said, you know, the collective interaction between people, it really does exist. But I feel like you can have the same alone in a recording yeah. studio. Absolutely. surprisingly you that you play you plan you don't have the inspiration and suddenly you see something or you feel something or you have a memory yeah, of something memories. a reminiscence of something a smell an image a person a, you know a, an experience charlie parker actually said that in an interview with paul desmond he said what people don't realize is sometimes what i play is just the result of a memory i have from the past day that i live through something and then i go in the studio and that's what i play i play my life i think I think music, you know, like Schopenhauer says, the, the universe once again, but music is also life once again. It's really like mimics life in so many ways, especially improvisation, because life is improvisation. What do you do when you wake up in the morning? You improvise from the first second. Yeah. You know, you don't calculate everything you do. Right. And so I feel like, yeah, life and improvisation are correlated, so it's no surprise that one should influence the other. So. What I'm going to do for you, because you kindly asked me to play something, I'm going to do an improvisation with two fingers, which means people cannot see me, unfortunately, but I'm going to use the two f second fingers of my hands, which mean, uh, you call it, how you call this finger index, already? Index I mean, fingers. In well, like in, well, same as French then. I'm going to use my index of my right hand and my index of my left hand to the exclusion of any other finger. Because, you know, because pianists are always like chords and orchestration and arpeggios and technique and this and that. Well, I feel like, you know, I don't have much to prove. I've done lots of records with lots of notes and lots of stuff and etc. to the point that something, sometimes I wish there was less, by the way. And, uh, and, you know, and using that less is more philosophy, I'm going to do that. Maybe you can try the same, but you can do something else. Sure, if you like. something I never thought of, but it sounds like a lot it's of fun. A, it's a I'll technique it. that I give to my students. I call it conditioning. I said, what can you give do if you improvise with a certain very precise constraints? Right. And then what, how does your creativity react to it? Because I think that the way your creativity bounces off the constraint tells you a lot about yourself and tells you a lot about that mysterious zone that we keep talking about. So I'd about. like you to go do that, but I, I do want to say one thing about it. In fact, I did an episode a while back called Venting in Two-Part Inventions, and the idea was during the episode I would, and you know, of course, the Bach two-part inventions. The mm -hmm. idea was I could play only two notes simultaneously, improvising. And my point here is that, that it's precisely the limitations that bring out your creativity. You're True. always limited whether you know it or not not. We have a piano here with 88 keys, not 33 or 97. So you have to make do with what you have, of whether you, those limitations are self-imposed or not. You know, that two-part two invention I, thing, I do it in jazz. I always tell my students, try to improvise on a standard using only one note on the, rest, on the left and one note on the right. Melody and bass, and try to see if you can make it sound good. It's very difficult, and they realize that they are hiding behind chords most of the time. Okay, two, two fingers, and I promise, I promise not to cheat, because I could cheat, you know. You don't see the keyboard, but that's okay. I won't cheat. I'm promised you.
Beautiful. And as you were playing, I was... I didn't cheat. I didn't cheat. I, I really didn't touch the piano with anything other than my two fingers. I believe you. Don't worry. I, I mean, you did do a glissando at which point, and I was trying to decide if that was allowed, but it's fine. It's fine. Well, you know, I use no, only... No, it's totally fine. I, 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 still use, I still use my finger only and uh, my index only. And, you know, I, obviously I use the pedal. If I couldn't use the pedal... But I, I guess I could do something without the pedal, but it would be a bit dry, I think, you know, so... All right, so I'm going to try this now. I have to see. I've never yeah, done this Yeah, you'll before. see. You'll see. It's, it's, it's a fun thing to do. All right, here we go. Yeah, it was fun. You see, that, that the beauty of this thing is that you can really like hear the personality of the person who's playing because yeah. there is no artifact that you can exactly. use. You know, like, uh, you know, you really have to use those two fingers so you are really like... Stripped to your essence. Exactly, exactly. That's the right, the right way to put it. And, and I feel like it's interesting because when you ask different musicians to do that, you're, you can really grasp the personality of the musician. Yeah. The ones who take a laid-back approach, the ones who get aggressive, the ones who try to challenge exactly. themselves, the ones who try actually to stay in their comfort zone. And you see lots of things about the personality of the, of the musician with a little exercise like that. And there are many others, like the two-part invention thing. And right. And something like that, or, or just playing everything in, in one octave, you know, like limiting yourself to a very narrow range of the keyboard, which many jazz musicians do involuntarily. <laughs> yes, they, they do. Play only in the medium, in the medium part, etc. So, so you know, I mean, it's it's it's. Very, I like that. I call it conditioning. I think it's it's a bit like the actor studio. You know? you have to play a certain role, and what? How am I going to fare if I play that role? How am I going to do? You know, if I'm this. You know, hairy guy playing this beautiful <laughs> woman. You know, that's what they do at the actor's studio. You know, they 
they they play stuff that's not them at all and see how they fare what what comes out sure. of them and that's and they and they learn about themselves a lot well that's the Stanislavski technique you know the right, the one right. that uh, they use at the actor studio that then Lee Strasberg used and you know and, and Pacino and people like that they have those type of exercises you know but the other part of that is that in addition to us both being stripped to our essences. You played first, so a part of me, you know, I'm listening and I'm thinking, okay, he's doing this pedal point type thing in his left hand. And so there's a part of me going, you know, I better not do the same thing. You know, I, I mm. want to differentiate myself somehow. Well, it's always, it's always a curse to be safe. You know, for me, when I listen to that's my problem sometimes in some musical events that yeah. you have to play after someone else. And right. it's, always, it's never really good because you're like, either it kind of, it, your brain is a sponge, you know. Mm-hmm. I, I've trained myself to be a good hearer of music, and that's a curse, and that's it, it's a circumstance. Because the sponge, my brain, absorbs the whole thing like a sponge, and then when I have to play, I'm like, either I'm empty because I receive too much music, or I'm going to try to, you know, play something completely different, or, mm-hmm. or I'm going to be in France and tend to play something similar. But I'm not fresh anymore, is what right. I'm trying to say. Right. You know, the freshness has been affected, you know. And... Uh, yeah, it's for me. And Richter said the same thing in his book. Playing after you've heard something, especially something really good, is 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 difficult because you know your brain is not in that state of innocence and freshness and mystery and void and emptiness that I think is a good state to 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 be in at the beginning of an improvising experience. You know, right? And I was in that spot, and I made the decision that I better but, clear you know, my mind and do something completely different. Otherwise, I was going to start doing a bad imitation of you yeah 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 you know that's the beauty of improvisation and and that's the beauty of life too is recently one of the distinguished members of my improv project a fantastic trumpet player by the name of kevin dean Mm -hmm. uh who is from iowa by the way and uh he, he told me something he said when we play something we never know for sure if it's good or bad right we can decide if it's good or bad based on our judgment but is our judgment good is our judgment going to stay the same? Are we going to think the same 10 years from now? So he says, at the end of the day, like in life, you do something, and most of the time you're like, oh, I think I made a mistake. Well, you never really know. You know, I mean, sometimes if, you, if you're in the street and you kill someone because you didn't look and you, yeah. you pass a red light and you kill that somebody with your car, mistake. yeah, well, arguably that's a mistake, you know. But in music where nobody dies, you know, I mean... And, uh, most, For the most part, no. Mostly, mostly nobody died. You know, you play a wrong note, and you're like, maybe that wrong note will be something I love, like ten years from now. So there is this kind of like, I like his philosophy because in a way it relates to the the, the 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 concept of mistake. Mistake can mm-hmm. become good things, and you of know course. what is a mistake at the end of the day? And like in life. I've done so many things that I considered as mistakes, and now that I'm looking back from a perspective on an older age, you know, I'm like, well, but if I had done what right, I thought was I'd... right at the time, what I what I think now was better at the t- if I had done that at the time, <laughs> everything would have been changed, and who knows, maybe I would not even be alive anymore, you know, because it, it seems right in hindsight, but it changes everything else, and so how do we know, you know? So in a way, maybe you could have done make the decision to do something similar or closer to what I do and then how do we know how it would have been and second is it good or bad is it better or worse is it we'll never really know anyway exactly you know? so exactly. it's uh, 
you know, and that's the beauty. I think that's another beauty of improvisation is that you have to learn how to forgive yourself. Yeah, you have to learn how to takes a while, pass though. the moment and be like, well, this is gone. There's nothing I can do about it anymore. It was what it was. I could judge myself and be sick for a week or months yeah, I used because to I be. didn't like this or that. And that's something that I had a tendency to be like that in yeah, the past, you know. Me too. Perfectionist. And now I'm like, well, you know, it's gone. It's gone. It's over and done. And it's what it is. And Get over it. Maybe people will listen to what I think is not so good. Ten years from now and will think it's a masterpiece. So who knows, you know, and... And let it go, and let it go, you know, like in life. And there's another part is, I think it was Thelonious Monk who said about mistakes that you should build on them. In other words, you're not going to be perfect, and if you are perfect, yeah, exactly, another exactly. So you build on them, and as if it was what I was intending. Yeah, exactly. You know, I'm hearing something, I don't play it quite right, and we're not machines, so I do something with it and create a story with it. I think it was Herbie Hancock's autobiography, he was talking about playing with uh, Miles Davis when he was quite young, maybe 21. And Herbie plays a wrong chord. And what does Miles gonna, do? It's funny. You're going to tell me the story that I wanted to tell you right after that. Perfect, perfect. About the wrong chord? Yep, yep. About that's the, the one. wrong chord. And then Miles make it sound right. Yeah, exactly. Right, exactly. Same story. It's a good signal to to end our conversation. <laughs> and also my machine seems yes. to be, yeah. the battery seems to be dying. And Perfect honestly, timing. Then. Honestly, I think we've exchanged lots of interesting views. Absolutely. And like, like in music, like Paul Blais said, if you see an exit door, take it, which means you have to know when to end. <laughs> exactly. And that's actually, that's another episode, knowing when to end, yeah, exactly. when to stop. I it was a very, very interesting conversation. I agree. I'm glad we had it. I'm really grateful to you for contacting me oh, and making absolute, it happen. Absolutely. And I certainly look forward to you sending me the link to the podcast. I will share it with many people because I think it's... That would uh, be great. It was a nice and natural and easy and friendly and musical conversation. So Yes, it was. Who could ask for more? I completely agree, and I want to thank you again, Jean-Michel. I'm going to close this episode with two tracks, one by Jean-Michel and one by myself. And it's interesting, my last episode was called The Improvised Sonata, and if you listen to it, you'll know that that episode was a launch pad for a series of albums I'm going to be recording. And in fact, I released the first one called The Improvised Sonata in various volumes. And when that episode came out, Jean-Michel sent me an email saying, hey, I've got a fully improvised sonata I've recorded. Perfect timing. He sent me the tracks very kindly, and it's quite beautiful. I'm going to play the first movement from his sonatine. It's a five-movement sonata. And as I said, like mine, it's completely improvised. And by the way, this is a private recording of Jean-Michel's. It has not been released, and Jean-Michel hopes to release it soon. And he certainly should. It's it's great. Then I will follow with my own. This comes from an album I just released digitally on just about every platform, but Apple, for some reason, I'm no longer able to send them albums that would be considered classical or jazz, strangely. Anyway, you're going to hear the first movement from Jean-Michel's Sonatine, and the second movement, the slow movement, from my second improvised sonata, which is, again, out on most of the streaming services, including Spotify. So, enjoy! Enjoy! 